0: Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Historically Speaking Podcast, Uncommon History with an unconventional pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins.
1: And I'm Kim Kimmel.
0: I'm a singer and actress.
1: And I'm a retired history teacher.
0: He was my history teacher in college.
1: And now we've been married for 22 years.
0: Sometimes quirky, Sometimes obscure.
1: But this is the kind of history you're actually wanna remember.
0: Hello and welcome to episode fifty of (laughs) Historically Speaking Podcast.
1: Fiftieth episode.
0: Woohoo. We actually have two things to celebrate today. One, our fiftieth episode. Yes. And two, we just reached ten thousand downloads.
1: Yes, that's right. Just uh, last week or something like that.
0: Yeah. yeah. So thanks, everybody, for mm-hmm. supporting us and listening and telling your friends and neighbors and relatives and anybody else who will listen yes. about our podcast.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: So anyways. so We
1: even got a message from someone from Norway.
0: Yes, we did. Yeah. Yes. We that love was... it when, when people reach out to us with suggestions and comments. Yeah. and yeah. So anyways, this is a special episode for you because this is a topic that you feel very... Close to, I guess. You right, could ever say. since I've been a boy.
1: That's Right. That's uh, been a while. Yes. The the whole panoply of King Arthur and everything that comes with him. I think the Arthurian legends are probably the greatest cycle of legends in uh, Western civilization.
0: I mean, what would even come close to that?
1: Oh, you'd have the legends of Charlemagne and so on. You have certainly the Odyssey and Iliad of Homer, which spun off so many things.
0: Right. Well, uh, and there's the Greek mythology.
1: Right. But uh, this is close to the top, if not at the top Okay. Uh, within the uh, history of Western civilization. Okay. And uh, so, well, we'll start with the historical Arthur. Okay. Right? That sounds good. First of all, we're not sure he existed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I'm glad we got that out of the way right. first. there
1: is a debate as to whether Arthur really lived. All right, now earlier scholars assumed that he did. Uh, the great Anglo-Saxon scholar Sir Frank Stenton, in his second volume, the second volume of the Oxford History of England, uh, Anglo-Saxon England, he assumed that Arthur did live, and others have too. Uh, now, in what p- what
0: period was he writing?
1: Oh, so Frank Stanton was writing in the 1930s, the 1940s, and so on, okay. 1950s. But in the last 30, 40 years, the hist- historicity of Arthur has been questioned. And most historians in the last uh, third of a century or so take the view that Arthur is mythical. And there's no historical basis for him. But there are dissenters. And I think Arthur is once again making a comeback. <laughs> As an historical figure, but I want our listeners to know we're not absolutely certain. You can't really say he did live, and you can't really say he didn't. Uh, He comes at a very dark time in 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 the West, and this is the end of the fifth century and the early sixth century. For the record, I like to think that Arthur existed, but liking something doesn't mean that that should you know be uh, the reason why you assume something is correct. But my gut tells me that Arthur did exist.
0: In some uh, form.
1: In some, that he, there is there is a basis for this. But I know that there would be those who would disagree. Arthur comes in the late fifth, early sixth century, assuming he did live. This is a dark time, as I mentioned. Rome had dominated Britain for almost four centuries, from 43 AD to about 410 AD. And uh, Britain was made up of Celtic tribes, various Celtic tribes. And over the course of uh, Roman rule, they became very Romanized. Uh, The educated would have spoken Latin as well as their Britonic tongue or language. But around 410 AD, the Emperor Honorius in Rome had to pull all Roman troops out of Britain because of the Germanic tribes invading uh, the western half of the Roman Empire. The Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Franks, uh, the Vandals, and others. And basically, the Romans told the uh, Romanized Brits, hey, you're on your own. Wow, good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Lots of luck there. And, and, and
0: these were just tribes and villages? And tribes and
1: villages. The Romans built cities. Uh, London has its origins uh, with the Romans. Londinium, Colchester, and other places.
0: So London uh, was already established by when, the Romans, When yes. Arthur comes along.
1: Yes, that's correct. Although by the time Arthur came along in the late 5th, early 6th century, London might have been reduced to a village or a very small metropolitan area, a very small town, largely deserted. A lot of the Roman cities ended up being deserted.
0: Because all the troops left.
1: All the troops left. And then these Celts in southern and central Britain, Rome had built, uh, had taken over most of Britain, but not all of Britain. They never took over the highlands of Scotland.
0: Ah, my right, people. right.
1: They built the Antonine Wall and then retreated from that. And they built, uh, well, they built the Antonine Wall after the Hadrian Wall. But then they really used the Hadrian's Wall, which is basically on the border between what is now England and Scotland, as the dividing line between the Picts and Scots north of that and uh, the Romanized portion of Britain uh, south of that. Okay. Well, what happens is when the Romans leave, within perhaps uh, a few years or something like that, Picts and Scots from northern Britain begin to invade what used to be Roman Britain, and the Celts have to fight them.
0: So I guess they think, oh, the Romans are gone, we can we can take back our land.
1: Well, the Picts and Scots, yes. They might have thought, yeah, the Romans are gone, and now we're going to take over Southern Britain. I, maybe it had been it was raiding parties instead of uh, really the idea of total occupation. But these Celts have to fight the Picts and Scots, who are fellow Celts. Uh, or at least we think the Picts are Celts. So
0: What the, else would they be?
1: Well, they're, I think originally the Picts, or the Romans called them the Picti, the painted ones, because they painted their body and they went into, into battle with their, you know painted bodies. And, and the Romans just didn't want to really deal with them. But the Picts and Scots were, for all intents and purposes, I think, Celtic. And they're fighting fellow so, Celts. So like the
0: Picts are probably Celtic?
1: Probably, yes. Okay. That's correct. Well, the story goes that a Celtic, British Celtic chief named Vortigern needed help So he asked some Germanic tribes to come across to Britain as mercenaries. This is the origin of the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes coming to Britain. At first as mercenaries to help these Romanized Celts to fight the Picts and Scots. They come over. Originally, they uh, function in the capacity they were supposed to. But then eventually they turn on their host.
0: Like how many are we talking
1: about? That's a good question. We really don't know. I mean, the traditional date is 449 A.D. when the first Anglo-Saxons came over. But we don't know. We think it was somewhere between 445 and 455. Okay. But you asked how how many? Mm.
0: We're talking hundreds?
1: I think we're talking... Thousands? We're talking a few thousand here, perhaps. Oh. Yeah. maybe, Maybe more. But what happens is they turn on their host. Apparently there was a discontent about uh, food and supplies and so on. But for whatever reason they turned upon the Celts. So now the Celts have two enemies. They have the Picts and the Scots in the north, and they've got the Anglo-Saxons. Who
0: they invited right. in. Right.
1: And so now it's a double whammy.
0: And they're among them.
1: And they're among them. And this is, of course the Anglo-Saxons are going to eventually carve out all of that to create England. But that's not going to come about until Alfred the Great's time and then his son Edward and Athelstan and all of that. And, you know, that's centuries and that's centuries That's way away. down the road. That's way down the road. So is the creation of Scotland. It's not going to be created until the ninth century. Oh, my. Right. Anyway, it's very confusing.
0: It's a lot of information.
1: Yes, it is. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> Are you sorry, though, really? No, not really.
1: Um. So you, anyway. lo-
0: you love talking about this stuff.
1: I do. I love this. Uh, who I can't understand why anybody wouldn't.
0: Well, <laughs> I'm afraid I have no answer for okay.
1: that. Okay. Well, supposedly Vortigern was uh, followed by Ambrosius Aurelianus as a leader of the Celts, and then Ambrosius Aurelianus was followed by Arthur. That's generally the lineage you have here of the Romanized Celts.
0: But he wasn't Arthur's father.
1: Well, uh, many think that he was Arthur's uncle, Ambrosius Aurelianus. Okay. Okay, but we're not sure. This is all so very vague. And And, and
0: not a lot of people are writing this stuff down.
1: Well, that's what we're going to get to pretty soon here. Uh, This is part of the problem with Arthur, okay, the the lack of sources. Now, this takes me to a writer named Gildas, all right, Gildas. He was a British monk. He would have been roughly contemporaneous with Arthur. Now, he actually lived. There's no doubt about Gildas living. That's not debated at all. Okay. And he wrote The De Exidio et Conquestu Bataniae which is about the ruin and conquest of Britain. Is that Latin? That is Latin. He wrote this in Latin. Oh, I'm okay. so
0: impressed with your Latin. Tell me as good as your French.
1: <laughs> Thanks a lot.
0: <laughs> Anytime.
1: <laughs> anyway, uh, Gildas was writing, he didn't write this any later than 547, by which time, if Arthur lived, he was probably dead, although Arthur may have lived into the mid-6th century. Gildas, interestingly enough, mentions Arthur's most famous battle, the Battle of Mons Badonicus, uh, in English known as the Battle of Baden. We don't know where that was fought. To this day, we don't know the location of that battle. Oh, but other writers we, would mention we We probably
0: those. know the general vicinity, though.
1: General vicinity, yeah, would be, uh, people think it might be in Wiltshire or Hampshire or someplace in south-central England. We're not sure, though. Okay. A uh, few place it much further north, so it's really wow. debated. Anyway, what's interesting is Gildas never mentions Arthur. He mentions Arthur's most famous battle, or attributed to Arthur.
0: Well, yeah, attributed. But he to.
1: doesn't. But this—the thing about Gildas is he wasn't writing a history. He was writing a moral tract. He felt that his fellow Celts deserved to be conquered and and have all these troubles because their morality, their ethics, had fallen apart. And he's writing from a very Christian perspective.
0: But did he think those foreigners who were coming in? Oh, he didn't
1: have anything for them either. But he—he uh, he basically, this is a uh, a moral polemic by Gildas. It's not really meant as a history. So it doesn't mention very many names in this work. I see. Now that takes me to something called the Gododdin. The Gododdin is about—is this long work about a Welsh kingdom in northern Wales, supposedly written by an author named Anuran. He supposedly lived about 600 A.D., which would be 50, 75 years after Arthur would have lived, if Arthur did live. And in this work, he's talking about another king, and he says, and he was no Arthur. So, if this is authentic, the Godothan coming just half a century or so after Arthur. This is very interesting that he would mention this, that he, this other king was no Arthur. But a lot of people aren't sure that the Godaltin was written around 600. It might have been written 700 or 800. So there's a question about when it was written and about Inurin. This takes me to Nennius. Now this is where it oh starts to get a little more solid. This is the okay. Historia Bretonum. Now we know it was written in the ninth century by an individual named Nennius. Okay. And Nennius goes into all of Arthur's battles, all 12, including Mons Badonicus, the last one.
0: Now, how would he know? I guess just oral tradition?
1: Oral tradition, uh, especially among the Welsh. Because Arthur is believed to be Welsh. uh, Yes. Basically, you can say that Arthur and his comrades would have been distant ancestors of the Welsh people. And to some extent, the Cornish uh, as well. Because Cornish and Welsh are... Celtic language is very closely related, coming from an ancient Britonic tongue. Anyway, yes, Nennius, uh, supposedly in the 9th century, 300 years after Arthur, definitely mentions Arthur, all his battles. Mons Badonicus is his last and greatest battle against the Anglo-Saxons or whoever he's fighting. It was We don't even know when it was fought. It was fought around 500 AD, this battle. Okay. Could have been 510, 512, 490, we're not sure. And uh, Nennius goes into great detail, etc. All right, so... This is a little bit more of a testimony to the fact that Arthur lived. But keep in mind, it's coming 300 years or so after his uh, after his life. Well, this takes me the most important individual in the whole creation of the Arthurian legends. Because there's the historical Arthur, and now the legendary Arthur really takes off with Geoffrey of Monmouth.
0: Oh, Geoffrey.
1: Geoffrey of Monmouth lived. He was born around eleven hundred A.D. and he will die in the mid twelfth century. It was a it was an achievement to reach fifty in the Middle Ages.
0: I'll say. Yeah,
1: and he wrote uh, the Historia Regum Britanniae. Now, who was this guy? This guy, Geoffrey of Monmouth, came from Monmouth, Wales. Uh, a lot of people originally thought he was Welsh. He might not have been Welsh. He might have been, might have been Breton. We're not sure of his ancestry. Uh, He eventually ended up becoming a bishop in the last years of his life. So he he, was a monk? uh, He was a priest, priest. uh, eventually. Uh, He was only ordained uh, shortly before he became a bishop. In the Christian church? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This would be, uh, there was nothing else, basically, in Britain at that time. And so Geoffrey of Monmouth, in the early 12th century, writes this work, this history of the kings of, of Britain. He goes back the whole way to the Trojan War, around 1200 BC, to start his work. Wow. Yeah, And then he moves forward the whole way to the 7th century AD. So he covers about, I don't know, 1800 years. And he is the individual that really is most influential in Arthur becoming legendary, not just in Britain, but on the continent of Europe, in France, in Germany, and elsewhere. And it is Geoffrey of Monmouth who creates or introduces Merlin and oh. Arthur's parents, Egraine, and Uther Pendragon. Now
0: how would he know all this well, stuff unless he was just making it, it up?
1: He, <laughs> it's interesting you asked that because Jeffrey claimed that he was translating an ancient book. That's what he called it, an ancient book from Welsh. And it was, was just a translation into Latin by him. Now,
0: nobody,
1: where is this book? Nobody really nobody really buys that. He was that.
0: making it up.
1: Even some of his contemporaries in the 12th century said, yeah, he's making this up. He just made up all kinds of things. He has Arthur conquering Denmark and Norway and Iceland and going to the continent. And so, taking,
0: essentially, he's writing a novel, a fantasy novel.
1: Well, he claimed it was history. See, but this is where you have to distinguish between the historical Arthur, who's lost in the mists of time, and the legendary Arthur. And he introduces uh, other things too that uh, writers on the continent, in France particularly, will pick up upon. So you can't judge Geoffrey Amomuth too lightly because he's so influential. Uh, in this he had area. quite an
0: imagination. Though. He had,
1: I, there's no serious historian who takes him seriously as an historian. Yes, I think he made a lot of things up. Uh, and uh, I mean, there might be little bits and pieces of, of fact in there, but it's... Yes, it's...
0: And obviously, the book that he was translating was never found.
1: Never found. How convenient. Hmm. Well, as I said, this, this starts to circulate on the continent and everything. And Arthur becomes this legendary, fabulous... Now,
0: how does it circulate? In book form? Sure. Do we have the printing yeah. press?
1: Uh, no, no. Printing press wouldn't be in until the 15th century. So, all it's right. all
0: handwritten copies yeah, it's all, of his yeah, work. Yeah, it would have to be uh, That gets distributed.
1: Right. And... Uh, it does get distributed. I and mean, then French writers start to write about Arthur. And uh, for instance, the most famous is probably Chrétien de Troyes. He would have been born about the time Geoffrey of Monmouth died. He lived in the late 12th century, around 1150 to 1200 or something like that. And Chrétien de Troyes writes all these poems about Arthur. I mean, he's the one that introduces Lancelot and Percival and the quest for the Holy Grail, the Holy Grail being the chalice that Jesus used at the Last Supper. Oh, uh, so he
0: came up with that.
1: Yes, this is where it first the first the first time you come across Lancelot and all of that.
0: And the Grail and and,
1: and all of that and Now Guinevere. what about
0: Excalibur? When did oh, that come in? Oh, that's
1: right. Thanks for mentioning that. Excalibur You know, I don't know who first mentions Excalibur. I'm not sure of that. That's a good question. But Excalibur is this kind of magic sword given to Arthur by the Lady of the Lake. And that's another thing about the Arthurian legends as they continue to spin off and create more and more legends and and, uh, ancillary characters like Tristan and Isolde. The thing about this is a lot of times there's contradiction among these Arthurian tales. Well, I
0: would think if people from different countries and different languages are all writing about this...
1: Person. Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, Guinevere, Arthur's wife, all right, is usually portrayed in a very positive way, okay, as a, as a good person, although she will have an affair with Lancelot, which wrecks everything. Yeah. But not always. Uh, Marie de France was a poetess who lived about the time Chrétien de Troyes did, and she was born in France. She was raised in England. Uh, she knew English, French, Latin, and all that. And she portrays Guinevere in a very negative way.
0: That's As, interesting that a right. woman would portray another woman right. in a negative way.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, you can read into that whatever you want.
0: And oh, I will. Thank okay. you very
1: much. Well, give it a shot. And then there's the Lady of the Lake. In many of the uh, spin-offs of the Arthurian legend, she's a positive figure, but not always. Since others, she's, she's wicked. So this is all part of the magic and the confusion of the entire cycle of legends of Arthur.
0: So really, you can just pick and choose and come up with even your own Yeah, you can kind of make
1: it up and whatever. Yes, it goes on and on. And I suppose the last medieval writer who's really important here is Sir Thomas Mallory, 15th century. He wrote Le Morte d'Arthur, and it's a large work. I have uh, the two-volume work, uh, you know, in a Penguin paperback. (laughs) Of course. Uh, And Sir Thomas Mallory just kind of, brings all together the entire thurian legendary tales. He tries to make sense out of them. And after uh, Sir Thomas Mallory, almost anyone had to use La Morte d'Arthur as a basis for dealing with Arthur. Mallory actually did not see his work published in his lifetime. It was published about 10 to 15 years after he died. He died around 1470. And it was in 1485 that this work was published by William Caxton, the first printer in England. This is a printed work. Okay.
0: Now, why did Because printing so had just long? come into
1: Europe around the 1450s. And Caxton was the first English printer because he had spent time on the continent. And he brought back the uh, whole technology of printing. And uh, Le Morte d'Arthur was printed in 1485.
0: But where was it sitting after this guy
1: died? Oh, it would have been in manuscript form.
0: And he just picked it up and said, oh, hey, let's print this.
1: Well, you ask a good question. I'm not certain how Caxton the printer got a hold of a copy of Le Morte d'Arthur, I don't know. But in any case, that is the cycle of legends told by so many, uh, especially starting with Geoffrey of Monmouth. And by 1500, it, it was extensive. And keep in mind, by 1500, this is going on, this is about a thousand years after Arthur lived, assuming he did live.
0: Wow, so it just won't die.
1: No, well, it kind of dies. It's interesting you mentioned that. It kind of dies now in the next 300 years.
0: Oh, well, okay.
1: Okay, because you're coming into the Italian Renaissance, the Northern Renaissance, all of that, and the Middle Ages were looked down upon by Renaissance folks uh, in the 17th century and the 18th century. They looked upon the Middle Ages. They called them the Dark Ages. They thought that there were the great civilizations of ancient Greece and Rome, then a 1,000 years of darkness, and then a reawakening starting in Italy, Uh, and then moving northwards into Europe. So they kind of dismissed the Middle Ages in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, more or less. Uh, The last time Mallory's work was reprinted was sometime in the mid-17th century, and it kind of fell out of favor. Age of Reason, 18th century, they weren't particularly interested in the Arthurian legends in the Middle Ages. But in the early 19th century, there is a revival of interest in the entire Middle Ages. And they're seen as kind of wonderful and and beautiful in many ways. Romanesque and Gothic architecture, the intellectual architecture of Thomas Aquinas and other medieval thinkers, and the Arthurian legends have a revival.
0: I see. In the
1: 19th century, I mean... Don't forget, um, in in England and America and elsewhere, neo Gothic architecture was very popular in the 19th century. The Houses of Parliament are a good example right. that exists to this day. That is modeled. Pujin uh, was the architect, and uh, it was modeled on Gothic architecture. And, now,
0: why all of a sudden do they well, rediscover this?
1: Well, the 18th century was the Age of Reason, and the 19th century ush- ushers in a kind of romanticism as a reaction against the Age of Reason. Wordsworth, Coleridge, and uh, painters become enchanted with the Middle Ages and with sentimental topics and things like this. So, yes, there's quite a revival. Probably the one who did more than anyone else is Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, he wrote The uh, Idols of the King, uh, The Lady of Shalott," and... Uh, Yes, there's this just this fascination with the Middle Ages. It's almost too romanticized, just as the 16th, 17th... I don't
0: know. Can you ever be too romanticized?
1: Well, romance can devolve into sentimentality. But what's wrong with that? Okay, all right, that's a point of view.
0: <laughs> Clearly not your point of
1: view. Well, but mine. I, no, I'm I'm glad that. There- Romanticism existed in, in Europe in the 19th century. I think that it's, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's lovely in many ways. But the whole point here I'm trying to make is the Middle Ages are kind of rediscovered and uh, you have a lot of the Arthurian legends being revived, if not all of them. And Lamort Arthur, once again, is read... Extensively, uh, beautiful paintings of the 19th century depicting Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and the Round Table and the Holy Grail and Percival and oh, just a a series of beautiful paintings I've seen over and over. And going into the 20th century. And you have modern writers enchanted with Arthur. I mean, you have many. You've got, for instance, uh, T.H. White with The uh, Once and Future King, which was published in 1958. John Steinbeck. All right. John Steinbeck wrote about Arthur, uh, the acts of Arthur and his noble knights. Hmm. He lived in England for a few years. Uh, It was in Somerset, which is oftentimes where Arthur's mythical residence, Camelot, is placed. But we're not sure. We're not sure if it was in Somerset or in Devon, maybe Cornwall. Well,
0: there's hmm. the whole tentagel.
1: There's Tintagel, right, uh, in Cornwall. So this is all part of the mystery of Arthur. And I don't think these legends are ever going to die. They're beautiful. Well, I
0: kind of hope not at this no, point. No,
1: I hope not. I think it would be tragic. They're beautiful. They're extensive. I mean, But I, for
0: the most part, you can look at them as fiction.
1: Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. But there is that fascinating question, was there really an Arthur? And historians still debate that, and we don't know.
0: Well, they always, in fact, just a few weeks ago, I saw an article about, oh, they finally found Arthur's tomb.
1: Yes. (laughs) And uh, stay tuned, because, you know, a lot of times, oh, we finally found this, and whatever. I mean, they thought they found uh, Alexander the Great's tomb in Egypt. I don't know, this was 20 years ago or something. And it turned out that the person that found him said that she was told about it by magic snakes or something like that. So that was kind of dismissed. Uh, You never know. I don't think Arthur will ever die. Uh, He is the once and future king. The tales told about him say that he died because of the Battle of Camlon. Camlon was apparently fought around 537. And Arthur comes up against his son and nephew. Oh. Yes, Mordred. He is both his son and his nephew, because Arthur had incestuous relations with his half sister, and that's Anna, all right. And another half sister, Morgan Le Fay, apparently thinking that she was someone else because of magic that changed her appearance, et cetera. And from this illicit, uh, blame
0: it on the magic,
1: sexual action, you have Mordred, who's kind of usually portrayed in a very negative way. And Arthur fights his own son and nephew at the Battle of Camlann. Mordred is killed, and Arthur is mortally wounded, but he's taken away by the fates to the Isle of Avalon. And he will come back when his land is in grave danger. It's a Messiah aspect to the Arthurian legends. And I might mention here, the Arthurian legends mix a lot of Christianity. Like Excalibur is really the military version of the cross. And it mixes a lot of Christianity.
0: I don't understand that.
1: Well, look at, the, look at the Excalibur. I mean, it looks like a cross.
0: Well, it's a sword.
1: It's a sword, but it's more than a sword. It's a magical sword. And it comes replete with the implication, I think, that it is the military equivalent of the cross. And mixed with all of these Christian elements are pagan elements. Merlin harkens back to a pagan Britain, not to a Christian Britain. So you have this intermixing of Christian and pagan factors. And that that is fascinating.
0: Yes, it right. is.
1: There's there's no end to the complexity of the Arthurian legends. I think that they capture almost everything. There's a lot of sex in the Arthurian legend well, cycle. Well, there
0: you go. There's the reason yeah. to go researching right. the Arthurian there's a lot legends. Of, there's a
1: lot of sex in that. And of course, Guinevere and many of them. You know, she has an illicit relationship with Lancelot, and that destroys the unity at Camelot and in Britain. And then there's civil war and. And things fall apart, and but there was that one brief, shining moment when Arthur was in charge and there was peace throughout the land. So that's another feature of the Arthurian legends, the quest for peace and stability, which is often so elusive. And, and the finite. quest
0: for the Holy Grail.
1: quest for the Holy Grail, yes, that will unite the land. But there you go. The historical Arthur, the legendary Arthur, the sources for Arthur historically are very sketchy and thin. <laughs>
0: That's what it right, sounds not like.
1: non-existent, but very thin, and then you have the entire legendary portion of the uh, the phenomenon of Arthur, starting I think really especially with Geoffrey of Monmouth. I think he was yeah. is the, the one who really Geoffrey, made it all up. Yeah, Geoffrey Monmouth I think is the most important figure here for the Arthurian legendary part, not for the historical part.
0: <laughs> well, right, exactly.
1: Right, and there you go.
0: Oh, that's it.
1: I think so, unless you have asked some questions.
0: Well, I know your favorite film regarding this topic is...
1: Excalibur. Excalibur. I I like uh, the 1981 film by John Borman. I think it's beautiful. They use uh, Wagner's music and uh,
0: uh, don't they also use
1: the Carmina Borana? Oh, they use the Carmen Borana, and uh, it's sumptuous in a visual way. It was filmed in Ireland, I think. It's just it's spectacular, just as a visual feast. Nigel Terry plays Arthur. I think he does a a great job as that. I think the cast is wonderful. Nicole Williamson plays Merlin, and he's perfect. So I highly recommend that film to people. It's well, not
0: a, one of my favorite is. What Monty Python and oh, Monty Python
1: and the Holy Grail? Yeah, you got, the, you've got that. You've we I saw. I mean, that, that
0: has to be one of the best ones. We saw
1: that in Broadway, didn't we?
0: Oh, the musical. Yes, the we musical. did. The musical. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. we
1: did. Camelot, right? No, Spamalot. Oh, Spamalot. That's right. Of course, they <laughs> that had to be mocked too. Of course. Yeah, everything had to be mocked. So yes, the uh, Monty Python film, and then uh, Spamalot, and yeah. then
0: obviously the big Broadway hit, Camelot.
1: Yes. I think the movie had uh, Richard Harris as... Uh, and Vanessa Redgrave. As King Arthur. And then um, yes. Vanessa Redgrave as Guinevere. And
0: I think, wasn't that JFK's favorite musical?
1: Uh, that could be the part of the legend and cycles of JFK. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he, he is his own Arthurian legend.
1: Yes, JFK. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of legends about JFK, but I don't want to get into that right now. I mean, but it is interesting. You mentioned that because there's the historical JFK, and then there, to some extent, is the legendary JFK. And I think Camelot and the whole uh, phenomenon associated. Well, it's
0: interesting because right. you know Camelot kind of ended tragically. And so did
1: JFK's presidency. I know, and
0: it's. I find it ironic that they always yeah. refer to it as. Catalog. Well,
1: it was Jackie Kennedy that really, uh, after JFK's death, that that mentioned it was she. She made the analogy. I think she originated that that it was a period, you know, of peace and. And, well, not peace.
0: That was the middle of the Cold War. I wouldn't right, call that 62,
1: peace. 62 was the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> right, that's not peace. The, but there was, and that really took off. And so JFK became this kind of mythical figure in the eyes of many. But, yeah. Yeah, I think he, had, a,
0: he has his own Arthur, almost.
1: But I think that that's the case. When you just examine his presidency and just look at what he did, he it was mixed. You know, he couldn't get a lot of legislation through, but he did other things that were a positive. Yeah, there bigger than go. life. Yes. Uh, some people are bigger than, than life. I think Lincoln is Washington, JFK, Elizabeth. You just, you know, Elizabeth I. They never die. They're what I call the immortals. There are a few people like that here and there. Not very many.
0: Not very many. No. Well, this has been fun, I
1: oh, think. Okay. Well, that's it. The historical Arthur, the legendary Arthur. Take your pick. Take both. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, that wraps up our 50th episode. (laughs) Yes, it does. And?
1: I don't know what we're doing next.
0: I don't either. We're going to have to come up with something good. I have no
1: idea what we're going to do for our 51st episode.
0: We'll make it good.
1: Okay, we'll try.
0: Whatever it is. Okay. So again, I want to thank everybody for listening and for all your support and all your downloads. And thanks for helping us reach 10,000. Yes, thank you. So till next time, stay well, stay safe.
1: Yes, goodbye.
0: Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past.